Nicole, it's Valentine's Day. And uh, we here at Kicking the Seat are very sentimental types. So we're going to be talking about uh, a movie featuring tainted love. Not the song, but uh, the idea of being so in love with a, a fine, fine, fine beauty that you would do anything for that beauty. Um, even going so far as to run people over, um, possibly uh, kill your parents, uh, get involved with illicit uh, drug running. We're talking, of course, about Christine in the latest page to screen. And if you've never read the book, much of my introduction will make no sense to you because aside from Ready Player One, which kicked off this entire screening a number of years ago, I'm struggling to think of a worse adaptation <laughs> of a novel by a master filmmaker. I mean, this is John Carpenter we're talking about here. This should not be as big a bust as it was. I've got a few excuses for him and for the movie um which we'll get to but first of all i want to ask you about what did you think of christine the film and christine the novel by stephen king you know i i think my words to you via text were that was delightfully terrible when i finished the movie um but it can only be that if you've read the book and know what you're missing um it can't you can't watch the movie in a vacuum and enjoy it in any reasonable fashion if you ask me (laughs) <laughs> the book is not even it's not anywhere near my favorite Stephen King book I've read um but it is the level of good that I expect from Stephen King like in my opinion if you look at like The Shining or Misery those are some of his top tier reads and Christine is kind of like a B movie if in insofar as Stephen King can write a novel that is a B movie um it's it's a B side it's not a greatest hit you know And there is a lot I love about it, but my problem is I don't really love cars and I don't really love teen movies. So (laughs) um, that's kind of all Christine is. That said, there are some really wonderful, supernatural, allegorical moments going on in the book Christine that made it compulsively readable in the way that a Stephen King book is for me. So I very much enjoyed my experience of reading the book. I think my review um, will come out after this airs, but I gave it like a seven or a 7.5, you know, good, not amazing is, is where I fall on it. Um, the movie was awful. And I think it completely misses every single point the book uh, wants to make um, and offers virtually nothing for anybody of any taste level whatsoever. But, you know, my thoughts are with you exactly. I didn't always feel this way. Um, I haven't watched this movie in decades, but I remember it was one of the earliest movies that my family rented on VHS, and I was thoroughly confused and disappointed, and I realize now, watching it this week, why that is. There was something wrong with the tape, because we rented it a couple of times, thinking that they're like, oh, maybe it was one tape had a problem, so the other. I think this video store only had one copy of Christine, mm-hmm. because well, both too times many. I, there you go both times we put it on it started like five minutes into the film there wasn't even like the black screen and the fbi warning whatever you press play and it's just the guy falling out of the the car uh in the factory and so like this is the strangest way to open a movie ever like what is this there's no credits or anything you know of course i think i watched it one more time maybe uh in the intervening years before this week uh but yeah, it's got, I think it has a lot of aesthetic prop, promise. You know, I, I like the casting. 
Um, I like the car. I like the special effects. But this, you know, I I loved the novel. I'm with you. I don't think it's the best Stephen King I've ever read. But it's fascinating because we've read stories involving children, like little kids, like The Shining, um, preteens like Stand By Me, and then like adults. This is the first King I can remember reading that is about teenagers and high school, you know, graduating high school teenagers. And it's just an avenue that I wish I knew more about in terms of like having read Stephen King, if he has you know explored this other places. Um, it talks a lot about family. Um, it talks a lot about obsession and possession. The, the number one big strike for me against this is that I always thought Christine was about a possessed car and it kind of is, but the heart of the story is about the previous owner of the car who comes back from the dead and possesses nerdy Arnie Cunningham. And they play around with that so much in the film that it doesn't make any sense. They make reference <laughs> to the book in ways that are so convoluted that it, it you can't even understand it. Oh, you're giving it more credit than I would even like, <laughs> I mean, the first strike is the car kills somebody right when it's coming off the assembly line, like, which is not the message of the book. The message of the book is that horrible things happened in and around this car and they are living on through the car. Um, and this person's terrible life is kind of carried on in the spirit of Christine. So like that's strike one. And you're led to believe as a moviegoer, like this car is just evil. And then what becomes interesting about it? Nothing, because it's just an evil car, like um the 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 real point where i was like this is awful was the movie combines the book character of roland d LeBay, who sells arnie the car in the book with his brother george LeBay, who in the book arnie's friend dennis who is our narrator for most of that most of the novel not all um and Dennis talks to George to get some of the history about Christine. And that's what really gets the mystery rolling about what exactly is going on here. Um, and in the book, Roland is like this kind of backwoods, like, um, you know, hillbilly-esque, just like overalls without a shirt under it kind of guy, military veteran, and just an absolute garbage person. Just <laughs> not, not nice. And yeah. George is for most purposes, uh, a normal guy who has lived a tough life because his brother was awful. Um, but I believe he teaches history or something. And, and he's um, just like a, a dude. Mm -hmm. And so they make that character George in the movie. And then he says, my brother died. But everything that Roland is supposed to be is wrapped up into this now living George character. And from that moment on, I'm watching this movie thinking, how could anybody understand what is going on with this car? That This offers no explanation. And I understand combining or switching characters in an adaptation to carve your own identity into it or to streamline the story. This does nothing but complicate it more and make it worse. Um, and the fact is, none of those... like that character has essentially no bearing on the rest of the movie's story anyway. And I'm like, why does he exist? Um, and then when Arnie starts to take on the cadences and, and phrases and stuff of this character, 
there's no payoff because if I'm again watching objectively as a person who hasn't read the book, I'm just seeing this guy behave erratically. And I guess I'm to assume it's because of the car, but it's that sort of show don't tell. And like all they're doing is telling us stuff that doesn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, pretty much from the first frame, I was like, this is all wrong. <laughs> and I, I do want to give the film props where it does deserve them. You mentioned the aesthetics. I think the special effects are really cool of Christine healing herself. My other favorite thing that came from the book to the movie was the radio and the music that they chose. Um, it does add a lot to the aesthetic value. And you, you just can't get that across in a book in the way you can in the movie. But when Christine flicks on her radio and you hear the 50s music and it's always very thematically relevant, uh, even a little ham-fisted at times, it's both humorous and fun. Um, so I really enjoyed that aspect of the movie. And that was the only aspect I enjoyed. I will maintain this unless you prove me wrong. And I don't think you will. I don't think so either. The one thing I will add that I think they got right is uh, the character of um, Lee Cabot, um, who Stephen King was obsessed in this book with Lee Cabot's cheekbones. He yep. kept referring to these high, like, nordic or viking cheekbones and they got they cast alexandra paul uh who would later go on to be on baywatch a, a few years after this um and they certainly got that right although they described lee as uh you know kind of blonde and very you know almost like sprightly and i don't think that quite matches alexandra paul's look i don't remember the name of the actress but she played um i'm gonna even butcher her character's name the the spider-man universe with uh tom holland She's the blonde, like, uh, school uh, TV reporter. Girl. Oh, Betty Brandt? Betty Brandt, yes. Um, I imagine that actress, when I was reading the book, I kept seeing her when I was reading yep. about this. I'm like, that would have been perfect. This whole thing cries out for a modern-day Netflix series. And I feel like we say that a lot on page to screen, but there's so much richness in the novel and so much history and story that it's almost impossible to put into a two-hour movie Although I will say Carpenter and the screenwriter, I want to say his name is, uh, I'm going to say Bill Phillips. That doesn't sound right. Let me let me look this up because I want to give proper attributes. It's probably Phil Billips. Uh, no. Oh, it is Bill Phillips. Yeah. There you um, go. Phil Billips. Um, <laughs> they waste so much time on high school hijinks like, you know, uh, Dennis and his friends like trying to figure out if they're going to ask out the, you know, the new girl in school lee cabot uh and then you've got the jealous cheerleader that you know dennis has kind of messed around with who i was surprised to find was a young kelly preston um who passed away i think last year but she would go on to she was in jerry Maguire and a number of other things but also was um uh, john travolta's wife of many years oh. um but yeah that that's just that is just something to kind of pull me out of the movie in a good way because there was nothing else going on that i enjoyed <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, oh, wow, that's cool. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of story to pack in here, but a lot of things that I think they could have included in the film and had it work out. But I said I was going to give it some credit. I think it might have just been the time because the book reads like a special effects heavy horror movie. And I don't know that there was a lot of that that you could pull off in 1983 and have it be you know convincing. All of the deaths in this film are so generic. Whereas they're very colorful in the novel, like uh, Moochie Welch, who's the the kind of the the fat kid in the in the jogging suit who gets uh, 
run down. He cornered into like an alley and then Christine kind of crumples herself up and pushes to, to kind of chop him in half in the book. She runs him down on like JFK drive or something and like keeps backing over and running him over like over and over again. So he is I think they make allusion to the fact they had to be scooped up with a shovel that makes so much has so much more impact when you hear described in the novel what happens to him. Um, There's the uh, Will Darnell character who in the movie, he's just this scummy guy who runs a garage. But in the book, he's a scummy guy who runs the garage and is also running like drugs and cigarettes and you know illegal merchandise over state lines and he gets arnie involved in this in order to help him earn his keep at the garage and that's where he can build christine because his folks won't won't let him have in the driveway uh here's just you know scumbag gets uh you know killed when the the seat lever moves up on its own and he gets suffocated like what is going on here there are no really cool deaths in this movie if you've read the novel yeah, the, the Will Darnell death in the book is probably my favorite. It's a little macabre to say it that way. But, um, you know, because Stephen King finds a way to make it difficult for Christine, even though she's like this unstoppable power vehicle. Like she has to get into Will Darnell's house, like through a picture window, essentially. Up and the then snowbank, yeah. Right. And then she has to get out before the floor collapses under her massive weight like it's you know that sort of stuff is interesting because you know i'm not gonna say i'm rooting for christine but (laughs) you want like you want there to be a challenge it can't just be this easy like there it needs to be a fight you know that and all these other scenes it kind of like it lasts two seconds and then christine just ends them and there's not really any difficulty because the movie places them in these scenes where it's like well, the doors are locked and they can't get out. You know, it's not very imaginative. And if anybody can come up with an imaginative death scene, it's Stephen King. And he does that, you know, to great effect in, in the book. Um, I am interested, if I'm sure you are too, in talking about the Arnie Cunningham character. Yeah. Um, I am absolutely fascinated by him in the book because... He's sort of this misfit nerd who can still get by. Um, and I can sort of relate to that. Like in high school, I, I wasn't exactly bullied the way Arnie Cunningham was like that. I'm not going to, you know, make shit up. That's just not what happened. But you like, didn't have 22 year old seniors wa- wandering the halls. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have John Travolta lookalikes uh, brandishing switchblades in front of me. But, you know, I can kind of relate to that sort of nerdy character who has has a little bit going for him, but isn't like one of the popular kids. Um, and watching him be corrupted by the force that is Christine, which we eventually find out to be Roland LeBay, is fascinating because you start to wonder where the line is drawn. And when Arnie, who loves the car, ends and Roland D. LeBay, who basically is only the car, begins... And he descends into this sort of obsessive madness. And what comes out is, for most of the novel, a blend between Roland LeBay and Arnie. Um, And you never really know which one you're going to get. It's kind of a two-facedness. And seeing how other characters react to it is really fascinating because you can tell that Dennis just thinks something is wrong. But the book focuses a lot also on his parents, um, Arnie's parents and Dennis's parents, for that matter. And 
Arnie's parents are a little too myopic to see that like something else is going on and they just want to control their son. I believe Michael and what's his mom's name? Regina. Regina. Yeah. Um, so they can't really see past their own desire to control their son's life to realize that like he wanted something and got it, but it's really screwing with him in ways that they can't quite grasp. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say in a nutshell is like the character development is pretty immaculate in most of the book. And uh, that's not just Arnie. I'm talking, I really love the character of Lee in the book because in the book, she's made out to be this really sharp and an intelligent person and really discerning. And she knows what she wants, but she also understands that she's growing as a person. And Arnie is kind of a window into like her rebellious side. Um, in the movie, we don't really get that much of her in that sort of regard, in my opinion. Um, but uh, Dennis is another character who has a lot of really cool perspective and he has a lens that we're seeing things through. And the book is made all the more interesting by reading it through that lens of Dennis is telling us these things. Um, the movie, everybody reads like a silhouette to me. They're all archetypy and tropey and there's no depth to any of the characters. And that makes it difficult because the movie is kind of the language of the movie is kind of telling you root for Arnie, even though he's kind of going through this downfall and then these other characters die and you're just kind of left like unsure of what's going on. Uh, and this is to say nothing of the ending, which I will save for later, but uh, lots to unpack there. But yeah, the, the character development for me, amazing in the book, not so in the movie and like the divide is huge. Well, yeah, and that's the, it's almost a crime that, again, I don't know how you solve this problem in a two-hour movie, which is why, let's just start with the setting, okay? In the book, it's, I believe it's Pittsburgh, which means you have seasons, unlike in California, which is where the, the movie is set, books in Pittsburgh, movies in California. And even though it's, you know, they have little title cards like October 9th, November 23rd, and then Christmas or whatever it is, there's no sense of any time passing, really, because what time does pass is all jumbled up anyway. Uh, when Dennis approaches Lee in the library in the film, he says, hey, do you want to go dancing after the big football game on you know Saturday or whatever? And she's like, no. And he says, why not? And she says, I have a date. Turns out that date is with Arnie Cunningham. When did that happen? The We see them in exactly two scenes together. One is at the football game where they're like kind of making out on the hood of Christine. And the next is at the drive-in. Uh, and she's like, I, or, or no, she almost chokes to death on a hamburger. And then he drives her home. And then at the door, she's like, I've always hated that car. I'm like, I'm sorry, we just <laughs> met you. Like, what do you mean you've always hated that car? <laughs> There's like 18 scenes missing in, in this in this whole setup. Yeah, the, the shortcuts that they take are all the wrong ones because like they take the shortcut of the George and Roland combo, but that does nothing for the movie. And then they take this shortcut of Lee just like dating Arnie and then suddenly not. And I don't know, it's 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 like a balance of they try to trust the audience with filling in the blanks, but you have to earn that trust and they didn't do anything to do so in the movie. I'll also say like the, the performances do absolutely nothing for me. Um, every single character on screen, I just thought this is an actor 
<laughs> you know, I didn't like there was no character other than maybe Will Darnell um, that I really believed was like trying to embody a character. And I didn't hate the Will Darnell of the movie. Like I love think about Harry Potter, like Professor Umbridge. I love when a character comes on screen and you just hate them for all the <laughs> right reasons. Uh, and that's what Will Darnell did for me in the movie. I was disappointed with how his story played out because I think that he is an avenue through which Arnie's new like impulses can be justified. And, yeah. and he kind of uses that as power and uh, empowerment to dive deeper into those impulses without really realizing what's going on. And like I said, it sort of justifies it and makes it okay in his head. Um, they do leave a lot of the Will Darnell story out. Um, and the other thing you mentioned, the, the Lee Cabot scene where she's just like, oh, I've always hated that car. That's the other thing is pretty much everybody instantly hates the car. Um, and you just don't, you just don't get it. Like, and what I want is the moment from the book where Michael, Arnie's dad, starts to give in a little bit. And he's like, I understand that you love this thing, even if I don't love it. And he gets him an airport parking pass and oh, lets him yeah. bring Christine and park there. That's a really great moment because that's how you root for Arnie, is you realize that somebody is on his side and wants to help him. And you hope that like that little tidbit will help him get out of this funk he's in and maybe that'll help you know, resolve some of the issues that are happening. Obviously, what what happens after uh, completely sends him into a spiral. But there is no dimension to any of these characters or the story they inhabit. And it all just feels very much repeating lines from the script. I don't feel any chemistry between them. The only characters in the movie I feel chemistry between are Dennis and Arnie, which is good because that's a pillar of the book. Um, but then here's the other thing it's in the book, you have Dennis narrating most of it, but then when he's in the hospital after getting injured, you get from different perspectives, which I think is a really cool writing device. Well, it's, it's just, it's, it just goes to an omniscient perspective. Right. Exactly. That, that, and you know, I, I think I, I put on my monthly, you know, my reading list on Facebook and Will Johnson from cinephile hissy fit podcast, he made a comment about like, yeah, that book is great. It's just, you know, I think he said something like there's a big cheat where it suddenly changes from King changes from first person to third person because whatever. I thought it was funny, but I hadn't reached that part yet in the novel. Having read the whole book, I don't think it's a cheat. Me neither. I mean, on a surface level it is, but it's kind of brilliant because we've got Dennis's perspective in being on the ground first person with everything that's going on until he, cause he's can move about the town. He can go to school and talk to people, but when he gets injured, he spends however many weeks in the hospital, he's on total blackout mode. There's no way that he can know what happens to, you know, buddy Repperton and, and some of the, the other kids who bashed up Christine. Um, so it does give us that, that step outside insight. And then in part three, he comes back to narrate the rest because once again, he gets out of the hospital and he's, you know, in control of the story. Um, and he also talks about his guilt feelings, which we don't really get in the film at all of, you know, Arnie is his best friend since they were six years old or whatever. But then Arnie screws things up with Lee so badly that she, they, 
Dennis and Lee kind of come to rely on each other to help Arnie and figure out what's going on with Christine. And they go grow close to each other and fall in love. And then there's that, I think there's a chapter called The Betrayal. And that's when, you know, it opens with, I think he says, you know, I kissed her or something like that. And it's just, it really tugs at the at the heartstrings in the middle of this horror story because Christine is a love story between, you know, everybody around Arnie and, you know, Arnie Cunningham and his projection of love onto Christine because he doesn't quite understand or know how to accept the way the different people in his life want to treat him with affection. His parents love him, that's for sure, but they also don't have any business raising a child or a teenager because they're, you know, bookworm college professors. They can't relate to anything. Um, and I do want to skip ahead a bit to the end of the novel. I think the most chilling scene in the book for me is this idea that, and it's completely abandoned in the movie, the idea that Christine only goes out and kills people when Arnie is away with a credible alibi. There's a whole thing of like, he's on the chess team. So he goes traveling with the group on the bus or whatever out of town. And Christine and go, Christine goes and kills, I think Repperton and then Darnell in a separate thing, but he's always got an alibi about being out of town. And the last final conflict, he decides to go with his mom out of town to go visit colleges because he's been threatening to not go to school. And that's like destroying his parents. He makes up with her. They go out of town. Dad stays behind to help organize the other, like Lee's parents and Dennis's parents and sister to get them all into one house and not leave because Christine could be out on the road prowling to run them all down. He ends up getting killed. And his body's sort of like used as a rag doll, and it's very ghoulish. But my the most chilling part of the book is when we find out what happened to Arnie and his mother, because LeBay has control of Christine and is fighting this giant, it's like a giant tanker truck. I think it was called Petunia. It was this big pink thing that instead of a, a boring like bulldozer in the movie. Yep. But while the battle's going on, as Christine starts to lose against this giant behemoth. It's revealed that LeBay's body leaves Christine and kind of floats and hones back in on Arnie's location. The car that they're driving runs across the highway and crashes into a semi-truck. And the driver reports that even though there are only two bodies in the car, he swears he saw a third party in the car. And so I just, my imagination was on fire. I'm like, imagine... Arnie and his mom just like driving all of a sudden this fucking deformed ghost appears in the front of the car and is trying to like jerk the wheel. Like it's just, it's a one sentence line that I hadn't been able to stop thinking about in the week since I finished the book. It reminds me of the end of Pet Cemetery, which is like, they kind of, I can't remember who it was, but somebody kind of goes to explore Lewis Creed's house. And there's kind of this weird time dilation of like, they did something in wife, the past. Yeah. Yep. Um, which I just find fascinating, but yeah, you're totally right. That's a really creepy and classic King moment. And to me, it's all the more impactful because we've kind of already seen the death of Arnie to see him physically expire. Um, doesn't really add much, but to know that it happened this distantly kind of makes you feel really small in the face of this great evil that is terrorizing the town. And that's an intriguing concept to me. And his dad's death is just the most tragic because he's the one you saw trying to help Arnie the most. 
And you know that he talked to Dennis and was like, I'll just get in Christine and, and try to see if I can figure something out. And then he, his corpse gets dragged into this final conflict and, and, and thrown through. It's a, essentially, they stole the bit from the book to dispose of Arnie where Christine like plows into Darnell's office and a body comes flying through the windshield in the book. It was, you know, the old man's corpse who was already dead. In this case, it was Arnie who dies. And I thought that was one kind of nice touch as, as he's like dying, he's, he's his final moments. He's brushing his hand down the, the Plymouth logo on the hood. That was kind of sad, but again, I'm like, the book was better. I hate to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. It's a it's a classic page to screen utterance. Um, and I will say, okay, the very final shot of the movie is exactly what I had hoped for from the book, which is it's done differently, and that's just a, a matter of medium, I think here. But in the book, Dennis kind of narrates. It's sort of an epilogue, and and he's like, Lee and I didn't end up together. Um, but I don't know like what actually happened to Christine. And I hear rumors of people dying and stuff like that. And he's like, I wonder if she's just coming for me last or something. And, and it kind of just ends and, you know, you draw your own conclusions on what actually is going on. And in the book, it's like the end of uh, X-Men two, when Magneto moves the chess piece (laughs) Um, or X-Men three, I suppose, Uh, which, which is a whole other discussion. Um, but it's very much like Christine is this block of metal and you see it move just ever so slightly. Um, and it, and it's a fun ending. It's, it's like, does this horror ever stop? If so, when and why? Um, will the spirit of whatever is happening in this car ever be satisfied? And I think that in the movie... It, you can't really answer that question because from the second the car is born, it's evil. Like there's no explanation yeah, it's like to it, it. It almost cuts the guy's hand off when he's, you know, got it, you know, under the hood and then it chokes the other guy to death. Like two like crazy incidents in the course of like five minutes. I, I, there's a part of me that thinks the foreman on the factory floor, like, you know, this car is already more it's trouble defective. than it's worth. Just throw it in the scrapper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is, the backstory you get for Christine in the novel is so deep and rich because you learn that Roland LeBay, it's like the one thing he ever loved. And it's not a typical King in my opinion, where like, well, I, I guess in a way it is. Um, I think like, you know, a pet cemetery is the people are the monsters because they're willing to do this thing that, that, that they have access to, but shouldn't. Whereas like the shining is trying to take control of Danny because he has this immense power. And I think with Christine, it's just like Roland D. LeBay was so willing to show love to this one thing, even despite all of the absolute terrors that occurred in and around it. And it's like, she just kind of absorbed that mentality and it's never described. He's a very soft magic kind of guy, but that's what's fascinating to me is it's sort of this vicious cycle of evil compounding on itself over the course of many years with this car. And it sort of uses that power to be able to heal itself and roll back. And it's, yeah, it like siphons off of these dastardly deeds for lack of a better term. Um, and it makes me wonder as a fantasy reader, you know, what is fueling this car? I kind of dive into this problem as I'm reading it. And 
it's sort of just like the spirits of these people who were wronged are all coalescing and kind of taking their revenge, which makes Christine more tragic if you think about it. And it's hard again to like root for her or want to want her to be redeemed because she is a literal car. Um, but that's kind of how I felt when I read it. I was like, this is the manifestation of all of the wrongs these people had to endure. And what's happening to the others is not right, but there's sort of like a sick, joyous revenge type thing happening. And without the context of Rita and uh, that was the kid, right? And I can't remember the yeah. wife's name. Um, was was the daughter? I think the wife was. was wife, wife was Rita. Rita. The I can't remember the daughter's family. name. Okay. But all these people dying in the car, it's like, yeah, it, they, it has this sort of vengeful nature about it, but it's also this sort of wanton violence uh, that's really hard to rein in. And it's, I don't know what to read into that. You know, it's like, is this what happens when you're a bad person? It sort of seeps into everything and kind of uh, corrupts the entire lives of those around it. Is Is that kind of what, the lesson of the book is i don't know maybe we should ask don shanahan of every movie has a lesson um <laughs> there's a plug for him um but that that was one thing i was wondering in the book specifically and i was curious to get your thoughts on it um you know what fuels christine and what what makes her what she is because in the movie she just is and i think that's that's kind of in keeping with uh with some of king you know it's different in that it's a car it's an animal well it's an inanimate object but it moves we've talked about um you know the shining which the overlook hotel was sort of the same thing um a movie and a book that we haven't talked about but i hope to someday because it's one of my favorites is salem's lot which is about vampires but it's very much the idea that there is a house in this town called salem's lot that attracts evil and so this vampire decides to set up shop in this town, in this house, and start creating vampires. And there's an an, an author who must stand up to them. Um, <laughs> but uh, and it's so he plays with this idea. It's it's funny. You sent me, I think, a clip like a month ago that I'm going to link down below. It's a it's like a YouTube skit of you know I need you to write like 50 Stephen King novels in five minutes or something. And this guy's like. What if dogs were evil? What if cars were evil? What if evil was evil? You know, it's, just, it's all very funny. He goes through the entire Stephen King catalog and you think about it like, yeah, his whole career has been sort of focused on what if these things that we kind of take for granted were inherently, you know, uh, destructive. In terms of Christine, there's an interpretation, and I certainly had this reading the book that, um, when she killed somebody, especially because she mostly killed like bad people, the ones that had, you know, wrecked her, were trying to harm Arnie, that she was almost collecting the souls because you'd see uh, or there would be accounts of some of the victims where it's like, oh, and I looked in the back and I saw Buddy Repperton like looking back at me. Um, but it could also just be that Christine was using the death images of the people she'd killed to intimidate and defend herself against, you know, threats uh, in the garage, in the climax, when she's really getting her ass handed to her by Petunia. At one point, I think it's either Dennis or Lee looks and sees in the what's remains of the back windshield, the Roland de la Bay's daughter, the one who choked in the car. And it's almost like, hold on, stop, stop attacking. There's there's a harmful, there's a helpless little girl in the back seat, but they're quickly like, no, she's dead. This is messed up. Keep driving. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, there, there's a number of ways to to look at it. And I think the the lack of an answer is one of the things that that kind of makes it intriguing. But the movie just has it be like, yeah, she was. I mean, you liked the music in this movie. I think it was alternately effective, but I think it starts off on the wrong foot because it's bad to the bone. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, I get it. She was created evil, and yeah. um, <laughs> let's talk about. Uh, oh, one one other thing, and pardon the language here, folks. One improvement that the book did make, uh, or the film did make over the book, in the novel, um, Buddy Repperton, who's like a 22 or 23-year-old high school senior, literally keeps getting held back, and he's a delinquent or reprobate. Um, he calls Cunningham, Arnie Cunningham, uh, cunt face, which every time I read it, it wasn't just ugly. It was just clumsy. There's just something about the construction and the placement of those words together. Just it doesn't flow in the movie. Bill Phillips in the one bit of credit I will give him came up with or maybe it was John Carpenter. I don't know. Cuntingham. <laughs> like it's right there. Just pick up the free money. Um, but the other thing this movie does is it obeys uh, Roger Ebert's law. Um, it was called the. Um, Harry Dean Stanton, M. Emmett Walsh rule, which if either of those character actors appear in a movie, there has to be something good about it. Uh, <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton, you might remember, um, was an alien. Um, he's, he's been in a, a number of uh, movies, but he plays Detective Junkins, um, who he's great in this movie in the couple of scenes that he gets, except for the last scene, which cuts from Christine being demolished to Hey, it's the next day. And Dennis and Lee and for some reason, Junkins are just standing right next to each other, you know, in this straight, you know, three medium shot, just like, hey, that was weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wait, where did he come from? What? How did anybody know this was going on? What? What's the story here? Whereas in the book, he gets awfully close to figuring out the truth about Christine. And he's a dogged detective that you're really rooting for because you like Arnie kind of, you feel bad for him, but you also like Junkins. I think it's because I'd seen the film, you know, decades ago, and I knew that Junkins was hanging out at the end. I was not expecting for him to die. And he gets the most unspectacular death. It's kind of like described that he got ran, run off the road, and that's what made it suspicious because he used to be like an ace car driver or something before he came became a cop. Um, yeah, it's just, again, it's one of those things where if you made this into a, a Netflix series you can almost have an entire like half hour episode about detective junkins yeah the a series would really rectify a lot of the issues and i think that of all the stephen kings we read this actually i think lends itself well to that format more than most of the others um because you you have already kind of your long-term a and b storylines which is the a obviously being arnie which conveniently starts with an a so that's good um, and then you have Roland D. LeBay and, and Christine's past, which is an interesting B story and things that you can easily intersperse to break up the sort of high school teen drama. Um, and that's another interesting juxt juxtaposition in the book is, you know, you have Arnie's high school life, which is pretty idyllic. You know, it's it's the classic teen movie high school life that most people would imagine when they think of like a John Hughes movie or something. Aside from um, the bullying, I mean... And also, true, true. The, and I get back to it in a second. I want to bring this up earlier, but the description of Arnie in the book, especially in the early scenes, is painful to read. 
because they describe like he doesn't just have zits. He's got like painful oozing acne. And it reminds me a lot of the way King described Carrie White in the novel Carrie before she kind of became, you know, got into her, uh, found her wicked voice. Um, but yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, Arnie's high school career. Right. So he's got this kind of and it's like you say, you know, it's it has the pastiche of a teen movie, but you're following the the perspective of the nerd rather than the jock or, or anything like that. But then you also have this darker side of things, which is Roland D. LeBay's life. And that sort of bleeds in. Um, and you can kind of have these dueling storylines over the course of time that lends those characters and the events that happen to them, the history that they need. And I think that's what like overarchingly the movie is missing. You just don't have the time in a movie to build the sort of backstory that you have, because here's the thing about King is like, I don't think Christine even kills anybody outright for the first like 40 to 50% of the book. Um, and it happens when Dennis goes into the hospital, which is another cool reason I think for the change in perspective, because he's not going to just follow Christine and watch her kill people. Um, <laughs> but, but that's, you know, that's part of what I think is missing is like, you don't have enough time to weave a tapestry that gets you invested. And that's what King is really good at. He's not afraid to take his time. Like I read this on my Kindle. I think it's like 500 pages or so. Um, it almost never feels like that, but there's always moments. Oh, damn. There's always that's moments a, a in a King stop. book where I feel like nothing has really happened, but I'm still very interested. Like that's sort of, he's good at establishing the slice of life and he doesn't remove you too early. Sometimes he waits a little too long, but I think that's lending to the horror element of the story is like, you're kind of waiting for that bad thing to happen. Um, so he builds that anticipation by showing you this is what the person's life is like. And you need that context for it to suddenly become terrible. Because if you don't have anything to compare it to, like in the movie, Arnie just kind of becomes a bad boy out of nowhere and you're kind of like oh well maybe he always had this in him and we caught him on a bad day in the beginning <laughs> like that's how it feels to me yeah i mean well first of all the book is 644 pages oh dang um and i this we we're talking about this a little bit earlier than i had planned because you know as i've discussed here my strategy for reading because i've got a million things going on especially these giant books i break them up and like okay i'll read like 13 pages or 20 pages a day for the month before we talk about it but i was pouring through this i finished way sooner than i thought because i could not put it down i, I almost developed a christine like obsession <laughs> with the novel not so much the movie um but you know it's talking about arnie's home life and dennis's home life which I think is a great contrast that's drawn in the book. There's a lot of time spent with it. It's a crime that, you know, Dennis's little sister, uh, Susie, I think, um, she she gets one line in the movie, and that's essentially like they're at home playing the game of life or something, and the phone rings, and she says, it's for you. Like, she's a full, she's a full real character in the book. And Dennis's dad, we find out, was... Uh, like a toy he he makes toys in his spare time he's got like a whole workshop downstairs kind of fancies himself like a year-round santa claus and it just you're like oh what what does that matter what's a stupid detail we can just cut that out but no because it shows that dennis has a really nurturing home life and arnie doesn't and that's the kind of thing that can drive someone to seek attention outside of the home nefarious characters can take advantage like 
Will Darnell, he was a hard ass and a real jerk, but he's he at least believed in Arnie enough to trust him to do these big jobs for him and, and rewarded him and and covered for him. You know, he drew up like a fake uh, some kind of a fake licensure so that Christine could, you know, go out on the street before she was, before she had, I can't remember what the part was, but she wasn't supposed to be able to drive until he had registered something and Darnell, you know, gave a fake slip. Um, so that contrast is very important. So by the end of the film, when Dennis is like, I need, you know, talking to Arnie's dad, it's like, I need you to get everybody that we know into this house before four o'clock and do not leave in, under any circumstances until you hear from us. Because he keeps saying, I can just imagine Susie or whatever her name is, like walking home from school and then Christine is waiting down the corner. Like just that I, it's Christine as an entity probably wouldn't even be interested realistically in the family if, you know, if LeBay even knows about that, those connections. It's quite questionable how far his psychic evil abilities reach. But Dennis has that foremost on his mind. Whereas Arnie is only concerned about himself and the people that get in his way, including his girlfriend and his best friend at a certain point. It's a real big difference. And it's something that it's a heart that's missing from the core of the movie. Another thing that just kind of bugs me is that scene in the end when they're setting up the trap for Christine in Darnell's garage and they're sitting in Petunia and they make a big deal about how Dennis's broken leg he injures it again and it almost becomes paralyzing to him, you know, in the moment where he needs to be the most alert. They're sitting in the cab together, he and Lee, and it's like they're kind of like final moments. They're scared, but they're also, you know, passionate for each other. But there's a real somber mood to it because I don't know, having, you know, reading the novel, you know, in process, having seen the movie, but knowing that things are going to be different, I don't know if one of these characters is going to die. It really does feel like final moments time. In the movie, when you cut to Dennis and Lee in the cab, she's like giddy. She's got like a, she's like, oh, this is so cool. Like you just see, <laughs> you see them from like, we're outside the cab and she, Alexander Paul is fucking smiling. I'm like, no, this is all wrong. Yeah. There's no stakes. Um, you know, in the, in the book, it feels like they know full well that they could die today. Um, and they're kind of operating under that assumption, as grim as it is. Um, you also bring up a really interesting point about Arnie's home life, because from anybody looking in from the outside, it's it's ideal. You know, he has parents who are well to do and um, it, it kind of paints a picture that is often overlooked, which is like, you can have a perfectly privileged and and like well-off upbringing, um, but there can still be a lot of emotional trouble that you go through growing up. Um, you know, parents try their best and sometimes they they get it a little bit wrong, but you know, you have to learn to forgive and, and grow together as people once your kid becomes older. And I think that we're watching that journey sort of play out for Arnie and his parents. Um, but yeah, there's, and, and that kind of lends to the grimness towards the end too, is because you realize like that will never get resolved. You know, it, it's, um, it's sort of sad to see that, like, you know, there's potential for them to overcome this. They're all being stubborn in their own way. Michael, by being conflict averse, Regina, by being like, I need to be in control and Arnie by being like, I want this one thing. And there's no willingness to compromise. Whereas you have Dennis and Lee who are willing to give up their entire lives 
just to save him. And Arnie is unable to see that he has the nurturing, caring people around him. He's just not looking in the right places and not trusting. And he has every reason not to because um, Lee and Dennis are together now and he knows this. Um, so that's even more tragic, which is like, you know, Lee and Dennis are just trying to act on their feelings being young kids. Um, but in a way, they effectively doom Arnie because they remove any connection to that love and nurturing that he is seeking. Um, and that's just as tragic an outcome as any. Right. And it's something that I hadn't, I'd kind of forgotten until you mentioned, it, even though we've talked about the circumstances, this novel ends with, um, it might even be in the postscript, but they talk about there's a, a three person, a three casket funeral for the Cunninghams, you know, mom, dad, and Arnie. And it's just, it's such a chilling image. They talk about the three coffins like lined up next to each other. And <laughs> I guess in the book, in the movie, we get, you know, the, the three figures standing out in the junkyard saying like, wow, that was strange. Um, <laughs> totally the same impact, but no, it's, it's just, it's an odd thing because, you know, John Carpenter, as I mentioned, he's a master filmmaker. I mean, we talked about the thing, he did Halloween. I mean, this was like right in his peak. He did like, uh, you know, I think like The Fog and, and Halloween and uh, Christine Starman, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, like the early to mid 80s, like he was knocking out pretty much a movie every year. This feels like the obligation. It feels like, hey, Stephen King's a hot writer. He's got this best selling book. You're a horror guy, John Carpenter. Let's get the two, no pun intended, kings together and make a movie. But like everything just felt kind of rushed and, you know, low budget, not in terms of the sense of like how much money they actually had, but like what they could do with their ideas. Like, okay, we got this cool scene where there's these three kids in a car and they're getting chased up this like mountain. And then there's a, a crash and like a, a ramming into a snowbank. And then the one kid gets out and, and then the ghost comes at him and like points at him. And it scares him to death. Um, we're going to shoot this in California. So snow is going to be a problem. Um, those stunts, a little bit expensive and tricky. How about we just set a car on fire and drive it down the road, which is cool to look at, but then it's just like you get another running scene of a guy being chased by the car. And then Christine just kind of like runs over buddy Repperton and leaves this flaming body in the street. It's fine if you've never read the book, but this is a constant problem. If you have read the book, and this is one of my frustrations with, you know, based on the novel by Stephen King. Well, the reason you're making a movie about it is because it's a blockbuster novel. So you're trying to say, you read the book, now come see it realized in big, beautiful, moving pictures. But then you go and watch it and you're like, this is nothing like what I read. And then if you watch this movie, it's kind of a junker, pun intended. It's not necessarily going to inspire you to read the book, even if you've got a Stephen King nut for a friend saying, no, no, you got to read the story. There's so much to it, so much more to it. Your reaction is probably going to be like, so much more lameness? Why would I bother? 644 pages, get the hell out of here. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's exactly how I feel. I mean, you, you've pretty much described my ethos as a reader, which is, you know, it's kind of sad that like bad adaptations can make people less likely to read than they already are, which is a lot of the times very low anyway. Um, I was at a friend's house a few weeks back. This is really funny. Um, there were like 10 of us just hanging around. I was playing darts and one, a group of people was talking like a few feet away. And one of them was like, yeah, who even reads books anymore? And everybody in the room turned and looked right at me <laughs> at, at like at the instant. And 
this guy had never been to my house. Um, he has been invited, but he has never come. So maybe he just <laughs> hates books that much. Um, but I was like, yeah, I mean, I still do. And like a, a bunch of other people in the room do. Um, but there's kind of already that attitude, especially among people of my generation, like, you know, the millennials and below, they, they want that quick hitter and they don't want to be reading a book for however many hours. And I've come a long way in my journey of acceptance for people who don't accept it as a hobby. Like, you know, it's, it's a passion for me. It may not be for everybody else, but I think that media like Christine is part of the problem because people assume, oh, I will just watch the show or movie when it comes out. And number one, they don't realize that they're foregoing all sorts of amazing stories that will never get adapted, number one. But they're also missing amazing stories that were adapted terribly, like, <laughs> like this one. Um, and here's the thing. I'm not trying to say that every layperson will love the novel Christine. But if you like cars and horror, you will like the novel Christine. Like it, it has a lot going for it in that regard. Um, and it's a shame. So that was a long way of pretty much saying the exact thing you said. Uh, but I feel it really hard these days. And I have a similar feeling like with The Last of Us, um, this adaptation, I actually think that it does quite a good job and the show is actually very good. Um, but every person I've talked to who hasn't played the game is like, the show is immaculate. And everybody I've talked to who has played the game is like, the show is very good, like high quality TV, but you know, the game holds a special place in your heart. And I know we talked about this last time a little bit, and you made some good points about agency and being in control of the story and things like that. And that's what the last of us show does really well is they expand on characters you didn't get to access in the game. And that relates to Christine because you have this point of view issue where you're following Dennis. And then when you're not, it goes to omniscient and the story breaks wide open. Um, and unlike the person who commented on your post, I think it isn't a cheat. I think it's a really intentional and interesting storytelling device. And it, it made me think, and it made me go, Oh, this is really intriguing. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to unpack in terms of adaptations and storytelling formats and stuff. But I generally agree with you that, you know, stuff like this is harmful to the medium of books uh, because it feels just like a, a piss-ass cash grab when there's actually a really cool and meaningful story to be had elsewhere. I think we'll end it there because that was that was very well well said. Thank you. <laughs> that was a, that was a cherry pristine ending there. Cole, you can take take that for a spin around. A the block. charity Christine ending. <laughs> I, I ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, but but thank you for for reading this book and and watching this movie with me. You know, I'm a my recollection of the movie was much higher from when I saw it when I was like you know eight years old or whatever, and then I watched it. I think like sent one other time in the ensuing decades. I even I bought the 4K Blu-ray because it was like eighteen dollars. And I end up watching the movie on Amazon because, you know, I can't watch a you know horror movie on my TV at four o'clock in the morning. So after it was over, I'm like, wait, I own this now. Great. <laughs> uh, but I own the book and I'll, I'll read that with with great interest uh, another time again. So, yeah, Cole, Cole Rush, thank you very much. What do you got uh, published coming up? Uh, anything to plug? Yeah, I've got two big things that I'm very excited about. One of them is out. You can read it right now. It is my piece about why people balk at animation and how we can change their minds. 
you are featured quite heavily in it. Thanks for the amazing quotes. Um, it has gotten a really great response and sparked a lot of cool discussion. And I'm working on hopefully some follow-up pieces in the future. And then uh, the second piece I have in the works, it, it should publish uh, late February. So sometime after this is out, it's about gambling and fantasy. And hmm. I basically talk about a little bit about the gambling industry in which I came up and kind of got my start as a writer. And um, I talk about three instances of gambling and fantasy books and what I like about them and what I dislike, kind of measuring them against the reality of the actual gambling industry. Um, it's a pretty fun piece. And it kind of talks about like how you can take a very real world kind of larger than life industry and add a little fantasy element to it to make it even more weird and wacky. So lots of fun to be had there. And then I have a, a few other pieces coming out on tour.com over the next month or so. So uh, you can check out all my work at colerush.com. Excellent. All right. Well, link, links will be down below. So thank you, sir. Um, I can't remember what we have coming up next month and I'm not going to stop and look, but whatever it is, it'll be great. It'll be fun. Well, I don't know if it'll be great, but the conversation will be a lot of fun. That's a guarantee. And that's what but, matters. Yes. All right, man. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to send Christine to the Junker, the movie, not the book. The book we're going to keep uh, in you know, one of Jay Leno's awesome, pristine garages <laughs> and never let it out of our hearts. So with that, thank you very much. If you like this content, please like and subscribe and all that good business. And uh, until next time, whenever that is, whatever that is, thanks and take care. Mm -hmm.